Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. I hope you had a great weekend. The phone number, if you want to call in and chat because you've been stuck at home all weekend, although a lot of people have it, they've been venturing outside. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. A lot of people venturing out and about. Uh, We had to go check on uh, some family this weekend, and e- there were way more people on the road than I expected. Uh, let me give you the count in Georgia where it stands right now. 23,481 COVID-19 cases, 4,377 people hospitalized, 916 people dead. Uh, it is worth noting that that 23,481 is cumulative, as is the hospitalization of 4,377. There are not 4,377 people currently in the hospital in Georgia. Um, those are your numbers. The worst county hit, Darty County in terms of death, 108 deaths. Uh, Fulton County has the most cases, 2,545. And then it drops down to DeKalb County, 1,800. Uh, 1,504 in Gwinnett, 1,470 Darty, uh, 1,428 in Cobb, and 1,033 in Hall County. That's the Gainesville area. And then down from there to 641 and down from there to 451 and down from there to the 300s in Cherokee County, uh, down to the 200s in Mitchell County, uh, and down and down it goes. Uh, We certainly are turning the corner. The number of deaths is is visibly in decline uh, in the state on the charts. Uh, And so the state begins to slowly reopen. We will get to that. I want to begin. I have thought about how to approach the beginning of the show, and I figure I'm probably going to make everybody in the audience mad uh, in my approach of this, and I might as well burn bridges with everybody. <laughs> They're wretched for the button to cut my mic. Um, let's start with theology, and, and this is not about theology. This is about the virus, but bear with me. Um, it, it, there's a, there is a method to my madness. Several years ago, the the PCUSA, that's that's the uh, heretical branch of the Presbyterian Church, uh, they put the her in heresy, uh, they decided to include in Christ alone, yes, I just said that, <laughs> they decided to put uh, in Christ alone in their hymnal, uh, but they needed to change a line, uh, the, there was a line, in, there's a line in the song that says the wrath of God. Uh, was satisfied, and they wanted to change that line to the love of God was magnified. Uh, And the view being that that Jesus on the cross was the ultimate sign of love as opposed to uh, God's wrath against sin being satisfied. Uh, And that the the Gettys who wrote the song, they refused to include it. Uh, They refused to change the line. So the PCUSA is one of the only uh, major Protestant denominations on the planet now that does not sing in Christ alone. And and the issue there goes to a very basic theological point. Uh, It it is a 2,000-year settled matter of orthodoxy that Jesus had to die for everyone else's sins uh, to satisfy uh, God's wrath. If you go back to Genesis 15, uh, Abraham splits these animals in half and intends to walk between them. We know archaeologically, extra biblically, that in an illiterate society of, of the Ur called Dean Babylonian period, or not Babylonian, uh, the, the pre-Babylonian period, 
uh, you would split animals in half. You would walk between the entrails, and that signified visibly your making of a covenant. If you kept the king's promises, you would be rewarded. If you did not keep the king's promises, you would wind up like the animals you walked between. You don't need literacy to understand that's what's going to happen to you. It's very visual. Uh, so Abraham cuts the animals in half. He's going to make his covenant with God. Uh, he's going to be prepared to walk between them that if he screws up, if he fails to keep God as his only God, uh, then he's going to wind up like the animals. And instead, God puts Abraham to sleep. He has a vision of a smoking pot, and God himself walks through uh, these divided animals, symbolizing that if Abraham screws up, not if God screws up, but if Abraham screws up, God is going to die to satisfy uh, the covenant that that God Abraham has failed to to keep God as his only God. He's failed to keep his promises. Abraham should die. Instead, God says, you know what, Abraham, I got both ends of the deal. I'm going to magnify. I'm, uh, you're going to spread you throughout the world, and I'm going to die if you screw up. Well, so Jesus had to die to satisfy that end of the deal. God keeps his promises. Now, there are. Th- believe me, this is all about the virus. Just bear with me. Uh, so there, there is this, this uh, thinking now among liberal theology that actually God is love. And so they can eliminate parts of the Bible that they decide, well, this is no longer love. For example, homosexuality in the Old Testament and the New, God is unchanging. It is still a sin. Uh, now, it's not a greater sin than adultery. It is It is a sin, though. And uh, there are a lot of, well, God is love, and, and love is love, and therefore people, that's okay now. Well, no, that actually contradicts with the Bible. So you got to begin slowly redacting parts of Scripture that you no longer agree with, and essentially God begins to look like yourself. You ignore the parts of Scripture that uh, contradict with you. For example, uh, in the Old Testament, it is very clear, and in the New Testament, it is very clear, God can send pestilence like a COVID-19 virus uh, to punish people and also to call people to repent to him. Uh, in Amos 4, a very famous chapter of Amos, uh, my favorite book of the Old Testament, uh, God says he, he he blessed Israel richly and Israel refused to repent, and so God sent pestilence and war, and Israel still refused to repent. Uh, you can't, if God is unchanging, and the Bible's very clear, the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. He is unchanging. You've got to have a theology that accounts for a God of the Old Testament who can send pestilence with the New Testament God. Uh, Jesus can be angry in the temple. Why is that? He, You know, God can throw a punch, believe it or not. And there are a lot of liberal theologies out there that have that have essentially separated the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. Uh, some of them make a covenantal argument. It's a new covenant, but but God is unchanging. And and you have this thing called progressive theology where the the Old Testament things that are in the New Testament, you can see some progression. So, for example, the role of women in society progresses through the Bible. Uh, the the positions of slaves progress through the Bible to to the point where it, Paul is very clearly wants slaves and non-slaves to be treated the same. Uh, but then there are other things, for example, homosexuality that are as condemned in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Uh, so you can see the transitions. You can see in the Old Testament or the New Testament, for example, uh, women in the Old Testament could not be pastors any more than they could be in the New Testament. That did not change. Some roles changed, some did not. You've got to use some level of discernment there. You've got to get a whole picture of what's going on. You can't just uh, nitpick and pick the thing that you want and say, well, this, because this is what I want, therefore this is God. Uh, that leads you down all sorts of roads, and you can see in liberal theology, the, the, not to pick on the PCUSA again, but it's one of the fastest declining denominations in Christendom, along with the Episcopalians. Why? Well, they decided to pick and choose their theology as opposed to a consistent theology 
theology. They got rid of the things uh, that they did not like about God. And so now you go to their services. Many of them are touchy-feely services. They'll select, edit, a uh, quote from the Bible. You'll never get into, for example, 1 Corinthians 5 and, and the like when it comes to condemnation of sins that that church no longer believes are sins, even though the Bible's very clear about it. They dance around things. You, you can't you can't preach in Timothy on women can't be pastors when you've got female pastors, things like that, or you have to try to justify them. Now, why am I starting with theology? Because for my listeners, I think for most of you, that is a common ground understanding. And the reason I want to is because now I'm about to offend the other side of the equation. You need to have a theology that can explain how the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same and the God of the Old Testament can wipe people out because guess what? The God of the New Testament is going to wipe people out as well. Concurrent to that, you need to have a reality where you can recognize that there are differences and there are experts who seem to say contradictory things, but in fact aren't necessarily contradicting each other. We're getting that with the level of truth when it comes to COVID-19, where each side is picking the expert they want who hears only what they want to hear. So, for example, the left right now wants to fire Dr. Burks. The reason they want to fire Dr. Burks, they've liked Dr. Burks all along when Dr. Burks did not have the president's back and seemed to be undermining the president. But Dr. Burks dared to go on with Jake Tapper on CNN and said this. It bothers me that this is still in the news cycle because I think we're missing the bigger pieces of what we need to be doing as an American people to continue to protect one another. And we should be having that dialogue about asymptomatics. We should be having that dialogue about this unique clotting that we're seeing. And, you know, we're the first country that really had young people to this degree. Italy and Europe is about eight years older than us as a median age. So this is the first experience of this virus um, in an open society where we really can understand what's happening to every different age groups. These are the things that we should be talking about and focusing on. So I think as a as a scientist and a public health official and a researcher, sometimes I worry that we don't get the information to the American people that they need when we continue to bring up something that was from Thursday night. She's talking about the disinfectant and UV stuff from the president on Thursday night, who, by the way, has decided to scuttle his daily press conference briefings in the way they were. He's realizing he's doing damage to himself. But there's Dr. Burks. Jake Tapper asks her about it. And Dr. Burks says, you know, we're missing all the important stuff because everyone wants to be obsessed with the Thursday night comment as, about the, as opposed to the important stuff. And the left now wants to have her head. Meanwhile, on the right, I, I have now had, in fact, I, I'm getting another email right now. It, it has popped up from another friend of mine. Uh, there's a doctor out in California, in Kearns County, California. His, his last name is Erickson, no relation, Dan Erickson. And Dan Erickson uh, held a press conference where he said it's time to reopen Kearns County, California. Uh, the local health supervisor agrees with him. They've been doing a lot of testing in their, uh, they they run a an, um, an, uh, dock-in-the-box shop. And they're seeing COVID-19 has the same rate as the flu. And we've shut down the economy needlessly. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing to a degree, but, but the key takeaway is that uh, COVID-19 is just as in wide circulation as in the flu based on the antibody testing, the testing they've done. 
uh, and and we have overreacted to the virus. And I'm seeing this, and I'm only seeing it from people who say that we've overreacted to the virus. We've wrecked our economy for nothing. And again, now I am over two dozen people who have sent me this video now. I got one this morning uh, through the contact line of the resurgent. A friend of mine just sent it to me. I've had multiple people DM me on Twitter, on Instagram, text message me. And the guy makes some great points. Of course, he's an Erickson, so of course he makes good points. But just as, as you got to have a theology that, that accounts for things that seem different in the Bible, you, you got to have a fact-based, reality-based system of processing understanding uh, that accounts for differences in what you're seeing. And, and I say it that way because on Friday, I interviewed uh, the head of uh, Piedmont Health's infectious disease program, the head of Piedmont Health's uh, head of pulmonology, the head of cardiology, an additional pulmonologist, the head of the, the Georgia Emergency Room Physicians Association, and a state senator who had the virus. And these are all experts and they're Georgia experts. And they were talking about how we haven't seen a, a flu like this. They were talking about the, the antibody test that the guy in California was saying, show uh, how, how this is just as common as the flu. We're pointing out that the antibody tests that are in wide circulation right now are actually flawed and aren't reliable and that no one, no credible physician is really relying on these because there's more and more evidence that if you've ever had the common cold, you're going to test positive for COVID-19 with the antibody test. Now, is the guy in California more accurate than these people? I, I don't think so. I don't think he's any less accurate than them. But I think he's looking at things and they're looking at things and maybe he doesn't realize that the antibody tests are, because he's been so busy, doesn't realize that there are a lot of people who are skeptical of the antibody tests. Or maybe he doesn't care. He said that the public health officials in Kearns County, California, agree with him they need to reopen. They rushed out and had a press conference and said, no, actually, we completely disagree with him. The state public health department as well says they disagree. Uh, in Georgia, we've got Darty, the Darty County hotspot. Southwest Georgia is completely overwhelmed. Their hospital's full. They're turning people away. They're sending people with non-COVID-19 to other hospitals if they can. There are hospitals in South Georgia that are having to turn away senior citizens because those senior citizens are coming from COVID-19 hotspots. And those doctors and those hospitals are afraid of spreading the virus. In the Atlanta area, we're seeing hospitals that are no longer overwhelmed. On the on the coast in Savannah, I talked to the head of the the emergency room there, and he says they're not overwhelmed with COVID nineteen. They've got a lot of room, but he said a uh, hundred miles away, down in southeast Georgia in the Waycross area, they're overwhelmed. That they don't have any more room. And in northwest Georgia, in Rome, they're continuing to build out an emergency facility because just to be on the safe side. Because although the Georgia model shows we've peaked in certain pockets of the state, including northwest Georgia and in middle Georgia and in southeast Georgia, we haven't peaked yet. The metro Atlanta area seems to have peaked, and that shapes the model because of the population size. In other parts of the country, we're seeing the same thing. If you've got to have a theology that rounds out the differences and tries to synthesize them into one overall picture. You need to do the same thing with the data. And a lot of people aren't doing that with the data. Uh, th those who want to reopen for business are gravitating to the people who say, hey, this is no big deal. It's never been a big deal. And here's the proof. And they're ignoring the people who say, wait a second, those antibody tests 
aren't actually that accurate yet. We've got some that are coming that are highly accurate. And yes, it does appear that this virus is more widespread than we thought. Aha, proof, proof. No, no, no. It's more widespread than we thought, but not nearly as widespread as the initial antibody tests said. Oh, at some point, you got to be able to synthesize all of this information together and come up with a common picture. And there's still so much we don't know, as Dr. Burks was pointing out. And we shouldn't be targeting her or Dr. Fauci for doing their job. We shouldn't be targeting this Dr. Erickson in California for doing his job and making a, a highly plausible case that it is time to reopen based on the data they're seeing. The overwhelming part of his his focus is that they are seeing a substantive decline in the area. We should be able with precautions to reopen society. But nobody wants to have those conversations. Everybody's entrenched or either this always was a bad idea. We should have never sheltered in place or this is a good idea and we should never, ever not shelter in place as opposed to, hey, maybe we need to shelter in place for a while. But also there is economic hardship. We have crossed the corner. We have crossed the Rubicon. The, the, the numbers are coming down everywhere. Maybe it's time to figure out a way to safely reopen the country because everyone says this virus is going to come back. If it's going to come back, that means it's not going to go away. Maybe we need to find a way to to figure out a way to accommodate it. But that's too much of a nuanced conversation for politics these days, it seems. Let me give you some of the shifts in data so you understand what we're looking at in Georgia. On April 14th, 854 people tested positive. Now, that's actually up from about 754 as testing has come in uh, from April uh, 14th, 857. It fell the next day, April 15th to 746, went back up to 795 on the 16th and down to 731. Then a real drop on the 18th to 377, then 467 on the 19th. The 20th saw a blip to 679 on, on April 20th. You need to understand, uh, based on what I've been told, a lot of that was nursing home patients. And then 463, and then 260, and then 151, and then 37 on the 25th. And do we have any more after that? Uh, we haven't gotten the rest of them in. So we'll get the 26th of the 27th, I suppose, uh, coming in at some point today. Uh, we are clearly over the hump in Georgia. In fact, uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has gone around the state interviewing different hospitals. And, for example, in southwest Georgia, they're still overwhelmed. Uh, Doherty County is overwhelmed. Uh, the whole hospital system there is is overwhelmed. Little regional hospitals in the area are overwhelmed. Uh, and in southeast Georgia, they are uh, on the borderline overwhelmed. And so much of it is nursing homes. In fact, more and more of the data suggests you and I should be able to go out and about so long as we secure nursing home facilities. And that's part of the problem is allowing asymptomatic people into, into nursing homes. The nursing home patients start to become incubators and they get the workers and the visitors sick. The workers and the visitors leave the nursing home and go back out into the community. And you don't want to lock people in nursing homes away from their family. At the same time, we need to be able to come up with better protocols in order to be able to get people uh, in and out of uh, nursing homes to see people. The real issue, though, is I, I maintain shelter in place was the right thing to do and shelter in place is no longer the right thing to do. If the virus is never going to go away, and by the way, I, I've heard from multiple people now that uh, we've never successfully come up with a vaccine for a coronavirus. Think about that one. 
Um, we, we've never successfully come up with a vaccine for a coronavirus, allegedly. But if if we're going to deal with this virus, if it's not going to go away, we need to find a way to accommodate it in society without us continuing to wreck our economy. So we sheltered in place. We're over the hump. Now, how do we start getting out? The conversations have begun. The phone lines are open, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, there's there's a larger issue with, with trust now on who do you trust. And I, I want to spend just a moment putting all this in perspective. This is a, a bit of a step back from, from the virus, which I think we're all tired of. Um, and we'll get to the Tara Reid situation, by the way. Uh, the, the audio from Larry King, my goodness gracious. Um, but before I get there, the, the, the trust issue and all, you know, Nancy Pelosi was on with Jake Tapper uh, over the weekend. And let me see if I can pull up. Where is her audio? Uh, yeah, here, here's some of it. Well, there's one thing, one point of clarif- uh, clarification I was, I was wondering. <clears throat> Vice President Joe Biden's co- campaign told me earlier this month uh, that he supported President Trump's partial travel restrictions uh, on January 31st, blocking foreign nationals from China from coming to the United States. D- do you agree that it was the right move by President Trump at the time? Well, let, let's go into the future, okay? Uh, the Actually, tens of thousands of people were still allowed in from China. <laughs> so, first of all, Joe Biden had called it xenophobic originally. In hindsight, he now says he agrees with it. And Pelosi dodged with Jake Tapper. She didn't want to answer the question because if you'll recall in January, Pelosi's the one who said that we needed Congress to take away the president's power to do that, that it was ridiculous for him to do it. No, I, I, I wish I was making it up. I'm not. She, she actually said that, that it was ridiculous for the president to do that. We needed to curtail his ability to do that. And now she wants you to believe that she would have left Americans, many of them her constituents in California, that she would have left them in China. She, They would be stuck under a Pelosi regime. Do you really believe that? And kudos to Tapper. He's one of the very few people in the media who pushed back on that and brought up her past statements. Uh, but most of the media just regurgitated it. There, there is a level of distrust when you know that the media is in the tank for the left, and the media has always been on the left, but right now they seem willfully intent on trying to defeat the president. And that should bother everyone because it means there there are fewer and fewer media outlets that you can trust. Listen, I don't expect members of the media to agree with me on a host of things. I know they tend to be of the left, but I at least would appreciate it if they would cover my side honestly and fairly. And I know some reporters who do that, including at CNN, who recognize that they are of the left. They do have a a bias generally, and they want to fairly cover the right. Uh, But you can see it whether you're talking about guns or abortion, mostly social issues, gay marriage, transgenderism, uh, abortion, gun control, where the media is not just of the left, but openly hostile to the right and refuses to, to honestly frame and discuss the issues. Is it any wonder people on the right distrust the media? 
Of course, you should distrust the media. The problem is a lot of people on the right are now going to media outlets uh, on the Internet that are just as bad as the left-wing outlets. No one really seems to want to get to the truth anymore. Andrew Breitbart was a friend of mine. And in fact, I've still got to, I've never had the heart to delete his cell phone number. You know, he used to call, he would call me. (laughs) I'll never forget one time. So he called me at midnight one time and uh, he, he was on a cell phone, called me at midnight. So it was 9 PM in California. He got pulled over for using his cell phone. So he said, I'll call you back at three o'clock in the morning. My phone rings and it's Andrew Breitbart calling to apologize uh, that he had not called me back. He had gotten delayed with the police and then got home and got distracted. And then he says, and oh, it's three o'clock in the morning, your time. I'll talk to you later. And he hung up. That was, everyone has a story like that who knew Breitbart. Um, but Breitbart had this great saying that uh, the, the truth isn't mean, it's just truth. The truth isn't mean, it's just truth. The truth is neither left nor right, it's just truth. Now, you can take that truth and you can decide to do one thing or another with it. You can decide public policy on the left or the right based on that truth, but in and of itself, it's just truth. And I've always thought that was such a good point, that 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 was such a good way to look at it, that it's just, it's truth. Truth is truth. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right. Truth is just truth. Do with it as you will. And I think that's fair. I I think that is a a fair and honest statement. Uh, And you can change, if you, for example, believe that individual liberty is greater than uh, the collective good, you can shape public policy that way. If you believe the collective is greater than the individual, you can shape policy that way. If you believe that, that, for example, the truth is that uh, kids in private education tend to outperform kids in public education, you can do one of two things. If you're on the left, you tend to then want to shut down private education and put everyone in public schools on the theory that uh, we should not allow people to pay for advantage and that if everyone went to public schools, the parents would be just as engaged in the public school as the private school, and that would help the public school. If you're on the right, you say, hey, maybe we should allow the kids in public school opportunities to go to private school so they can improve their education. You, you can look at the truth and come about it different ways. We, the problem is we more and more have a hard time even deciding what the truth is. I mean, l- look at the people on the right who are only listening to the doctors now who want to peddle the idea that the virus is just as, is no worse than the flu and that we're overcounting everything, we're overstating everything, and, and we made terrible public policy decisions along with every other country on the planet. Look at people on the left who refuse to even consider that now may be the time to start reopening the economy. Warm weather is upon us. People are suffering. The government deficits are going to, we're looking at $5 trillion additional dollars in a deficit, not the debt. Maybe, just maybe, it's time to reopen the economy slowly. No one wants to get to the truth anymore. And that's the problem. And, and you know, it, the president does play a part in this. We should acknowledge the, the president does play a role. The president has a hard time sometimes dealing with the facts. The press, likewise, the president drives them crazy. The president tends to know. You know, this has got to be the most difficult press cycle for the president, as an aside, because typically the president has the ability to move the news cycle on to something else. We've been in this COVID-19 stuff for two, three months now. 
None of us can talk about anything else. And I just, I got a sense that people are getting tired of it. Uh, I also get a sense that people are ready to come out of their house and we're going to have to come up with new ways to get people out. You know, Stacey Abrams is out there now saying that, um, that Brian Kemp is screwing up. The president is out now beating up Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp wants a slow measured approach to reopening the state. And you know, I, I don't know that I would have done it immediately. I think shelter in place was the right thing to do. And, and for the people to say, no, it's about freedom. We should be able to do it. No, because I literally passed a woman on Bass Road in Macon who was texting and driving while eating an ice cream cone and had her face mask pulled down below her chin. Uh, idiots like that are going to get us all killed. If not on the road, they're going to give us the virus. Uh, so for a couple of weeks, we needed to all stay home, whether you wanted to or not, to keep the idiots like that from getting the virus and killing themselves and their families, or at least getting people uh, highly infected. So, yes, we had to stay home for a few weeks because uh, not all of us can deter the idiots. The only thing that can deter the idiots is the force of law. But perhaps it is time to reopen. I will probably take a go slow approach. I I will tell you, we we went to visit family this weekend. They've been quarantined. We've been quarantined. They've been unwell, but not of the virus. Uh, We needed to lay eyes on them. So we went. uh, We socially distanced until the dog decided to swallow a fish hook uh luckily it only went through her lip she so we have a we've got a golden doodle who's a very picky eater and she nibbles thankfully so our son was fishing uh his bait was still on his hook and before he could deal with it the dog decided to nibble the chicken nugget he was using for bait and the hook went through her lip and there were no vets you know interestingly enough so we called a, a number of vets in the area and said uh, here's what happened. Can we come by? Did she swallow the hook? It's through her lip. Um, and they said, well, no. And we were, so we're in Carrollton and we called multiple veterinarians and none of them would help. They all had staff who could, but they were only dealing with local clients. No, no new people at all. One of the, the downsides of this virus, they're like, well, you can drive to Lithia Springs 45 minutes away and, and somebody there can deal with it. And we just decided, you know what, it, it's it's not a life-threatening thing for the dog. We're just going to drive back to Macon and and let Dr. Fike, our, our veterinarian, deal with it. And so we drove back to Macon uh, two hours uh, in order to do it. And, and it's a good thing we did. We couldn't get it out ourselves. So it was a three-barbed hook. And he, he had to sedate the dog to be able to get the hook out. There was no getting the hook out without sedating the dog, which we couldn't do. Um, the dog is perfectly fine. Um, and, and, but still, it was amazing to me, uh, how no vet given the situation, the dog was in distress. It's like, nope, nope. Can't help you. But along the way, the number of people who were on the road surprised me. The number of people who were out and about surprised me. The number of people who are, are in the grocery store. In fact, yesterday I went grocery shopping yesterday afternoon and the lady who cuts the meat at the deli counter at Publish was telling me that she's seen more people at the grocery store this weekend than in the last couple of months. And thankfully, with the exception of toilet paper, by the way, if you're in Macon, the Kroger on Forsyth had toilet paper and paper towels yesterday. A lot of them, no less. Um, but the Publix doesn't. Uh, but there were a lot of people. And by and large, you could get everything. I, I wound up going to six grocery stores yesterday to get everything that I needed, but I got everything except for like two or three items at Publix. And then I had to go to a different Publix to get something else. And then I had to go to Kroger uh, to get something else. And then where else did I go? I went to a different Kroger to get flour. 
and then realized, so there is a, a shortage now on flour. And I wound up going to six grocery stores before I could find flour. Now, you can get some flour, like self-rising flour. You can get it. Not everybody uses self-rising flour. Uh, White lily self-rising flour and all-purpose flour are generally available. If you want the King Arthur stuff, you're going to have a hard time finding it. Or the Gold Meal or the Pillsbury stuff, have a real hard time finding it. Uh, and creamer, my the, the, the creamer my wife likes for coffee. It's difficult to find that. And now, of course, you know, if you're reading about there are going to be meat shortages because uh, Tyson's and Smithfield and a couple others, uh, they've gotten the virus spreading in their plants. They've had to shut down plant facilities. And then there's this whole thing. Remember, Sonny Purdue was here a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about this, uh, that commercial ag manufacturers have a hard time uh, dealing with the shift to more people being home. So restaurants aren't buying the the meat and they're not set up to sell to residences and they're trying to figure out how to make that shift and it's become very, very difficult for them to do. And as a result, uh, cattle are being slaughtered, hens are being killed, and we're going to have a meat shortage. Now we've had the toilet paper shortage. We've had the paper towel shortage. We're about to have the milk, egg, and meat shortage because they're killing all the animals because they can't figure out how to transition from uh, commercial retail, commercial sales to retail sales, which is insane. But this is the world we live in. You know, so the, we live in a society, particularly in the United States, we live in a society where the supply chain is, is up to the minute supply chain. So you can get something in to the minute that it's needed. And we see now in crisis that that supply chain works great in normal times, but in crisis, we have a hard time converting. So, for example, more people are at home instead of in in, um, their offices. So how do you convert the uh, commercial uh, business side of the toilet paper industry into a retail side, the labeling, the packaging, all that? Well, restaurants are now closing or closed. So how do you convert the restaurant sales industry into the consumer sales industry? And a lot of the farmers and the the middlemen and the packagers, they've just given up and they're throwing stuff away, which is horrific, the amount of food that's being thrown away. But we're starting to see the, the upside, downside uh, of, of things out there. We're starting to see the system being, being um, tested in crisis. And I wonder how many people out there are taking notes. I, I really am interested to know how many people are out there taking notes on this saying, okay, in the crisis, this broke down. Here's what we need to fix. And one of those things is the regulatory structure. And I know that the uh, the White House has paid attention to this because the White House is very anti-regulation to begin with. And they're starting to see a lot of regulations are stymieing the ability of commercial sales in the ag industry to be able to go to the retail industry. So, for example, if you're selling for lack of a better word, a, a, a side, a, a giant side of beef, a, let's call it a log of filet. You don't have to label it with all the calories and all the details uh, when it's going to the restaurant. But you do if it's going to the consumer. Well, a lot of these companies that are set up to sell to restaurants, they're not set up to do the labeling to sell to consumers. You would think that maybe we should consider waiving those regulations at a federal level. And some of them are being are being waived, but then a lot of them are also impacted by state regulations and the state regulators aren't waiving them. It seems like we should be rethinking this stuff. It just, it just, just seems to me that we should. Okay. The phone number here, if you want to call in, if you want to chime in, 
877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. When we come back, we got to talk about North Korea. What is happening there? At the top of the hour, we'll get into the Georgia stuff. We will. There's a lot of specific Georgia news, but I want to talk about the Tara Reid stuff. Tara Reid, not the actress. Uh, Tara Reid, the Joe Biden accuser. Her mother called in to Larry King Live in the early 90s when it supposedly happened. The audio has been uncovered. It is now being disappeared from the internet. And I want to explain why. It's not a conspiracy. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, but nobody seems to want to think about it. They just want to yell, I've got the answer. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. What is happening in North Korea? Is he dead or not? Uh, I'm... Man, okay, so so there, there's a level of Christian guilt here because a lot of Christian pastors I respect say, you know, uh, Christians should never celebrate the death of anyone. We should mourn a soul that's been lost to heaven and and, and um, resigned to hell forever. And I'm thinking, yes, <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to, but still, uh, the 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 sinner in me is is pretty glad that this guy will be rotting next to Hitler in hell for eternity. Uh, if, if that's the case, is that the case? We don't really know. Nobody seems to know what is actually the deal here. It appears that Kim Jong-un is uh, dead or dying. And we don't have a sense of it. Originally, there were reports that Kim Jong-un was in hiding as uh, as at some resort because everybody around him got the virus and he didn't want it. Uh, but now there are all sorts of rumors saying that uh, he's still alive. With rumors swirling about North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, a state-run newspaper tried to prove the despot is alive and well by reporting that he has sent a thank-you letter to builders in a seaside resort. The Rodong Sinmung outlet claimed Monday that Kim pinned the message to builders working on a tourism project in Wonsan, where South Korea believes the leader's been staying. Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un has sent his appreciation to the workers who devoted themselves to building the Wonsan Kalma Tourist Zone. The Korean Central Broadcasting Station made a similar report. The, the reports are the latest about North Korea's strongman, who's been the subject of rampant speculation in recent days that he's died or was in a vegetative state or as South Korea says, is absolutely fine. The United States monitoring website 38 North has reported that satellite imagery showed what appeared to be Kim's personal train parked at a station in his Wonsan compound since April 21st. The train's presence does not prove the whereabouts of the North Korean leader or indicate anything about his health, but it does lend weight to reports that Kim is staying there. Questions about the reclusive dictator's health flared after he missed an April 15th commemoration of the 108th birthday of his grandfather, the Hermit Kingdom's founder, Kim Il-sung. Meanwhile, other unverified reports are that Kim may have been injured during a recent missile test and that he went into hiding after one of his bodyguards was suspected of contracting COVID-19. An unnamed source in China told the South Korean newspaper Zhongang Ilbo that Kim skipped the birthday bash for his late grandfather because of the guard's possible infection. Another outlet said Kim left Pyongyang for Wusan to avoid the virus. Moon Chung-in, a special security advisor to the South Korean president, said Kim's alive and well. 
But now others are saying that he's actually dead after heart surgery and his sister is going to become the leader of North Korea. And interestingly enough, there are a bunch of of, uh, liberals on social media saying it's really a damning indictment on the United States that North Korea is going to have a female leader before we do. You know, uh, so more women in the United States vote than men. If the United States does not have a female leader, it's because of women. Oh, you don't like that, do you? But I mean, more women vote than men in this country. And and it's the 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 women that's the the women in the Democratic Party who gave Joe Biden the nomination. Not they didn't give a woman the nomination. I wonder if they knew about Tara Reid. If the media had covered Tara Reid, would that have changed things? Would would there be a do-over? The Democrats are a little bit concerned about this Tara Reid stuff. Because it's real hard to do all the attacks they've they've done on Donald Trump and his character when this Tara Reid situation is out there. And it, a lot of them uh, look like hypocrites after the Brett Kavanaugh situation. And now there there is this conspiracy theory on the right that CNN is covering for Joe Biden because they've taken the video down of Tara Reid's mother calling in the Larry King live except they haven't. I know what has happened to the video. And in fact, I want to play for you the video of Tara Reid's mother calling into Larry King Live in the early 90s when we come back. Well, I I have the number. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of it, that's not the number I'm talking about. Bear with me. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. The number is 5 That's the total number of positive cases of COVID-19 in Georgia yesterday. That number will go up today uh, as more of the tests come back. But right now it's at 5. The 25th is at 37. Uh, The 24th is at 151. Uh, The 23rd is at 260. The 22nd, 463. The 21st, 586. The 20th, uh, 679. So it's been downhill from, from the 20th. Uh, really it's been downhill since the 14th, uh, 854 people that day it's gone downhill. We, we had a blip on the, uh, 20th and 21st with some nursing home numbers going back and nursing homes appear to be the hardest hit aspect of this. We'll, we'll get back into that later at the bottom of this hour. Mark Butler is going to join me. He's the labor commissioner. We'll talk about the unemployment numbers, the jobs and, and the economy here in Georgia at the bottom of the hour right now. I, I want to move into something Non-virus related, praise the Lord and hallelujah. Tara Reid, her mother called into CNN back in the early 90s. Now, let me set the stage here. Tara Reid was a staffer who worked for Joe Biden. She said that at one point, Joe Biden, if I get the details right, pinned her against the wall and placed his finger where he should not have that she was uh, sexually assaulted by Joe Biden. Now, unlike Christine Blasey Ford, Tara Reid says she told multiple people at the time and that her mother even called into Larry King Live on CNN to discuss it. Well, here is Tara Reid's mother calling into CNN, confirming another aspect of her story. Yes, hello. Um, I'm wondering what um, uh, a, a staffer uh, would do, do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there. 
uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's true. That's she respected the guy. Uh, she didn't tell anyone. Of course, the left is pointing out that she respected him after he did that to her. What? Okay. Here's the thing. Um, there is a conspiracy theory now on the right that CNN has gotten rid of that audio that uh, this has caused a Streisand effect. Now, has anyone heard of the Streisand effect? Let, let me tell you what the Streisand effect is. Back in, I want to say this was in the 90s, a photographer was doing a project on coastal erosion in California and went up the the, the coast of California highlighting construction along the cliffs and coastline of California and how it was impacting uh, the, the environment in California and coastal erosion. One of the places that was spotlighted was in Malibu, the cliffs of Malibu, Barbara Streisand's house, perched on the edge of the cliff. And Barbara Streisand sued to stop the photographer from releasing a photo of her home. And the result is that the picture went into widespread circulation. The media put the picture on the front page of newspapers across the country to talk about the lawsuit. And Barbara Streisand gave the the picture more exposure than it ever otherwise would have ever gotten. And it has thus been called the Streisand effect, that when someone objects to something being covered, the odds are it's going to get covered even more. And so there are people saying this has caused a Streisand effect for this video that CNN has has memory hold it. It was on uh, Google Video, not on YouTube. Remember, Google used to have a competitor to YouTube, and uh, they ultimately bought YouTube and wound down their service, but you can still find stuff there. And someone put up the video of Tara Reid's mother on Google Video years ago. It has recently come to light again and is overwhelmed. And, well, it's getting all sorts of exposure. There's a problem with the conspiracy theory. CNN has not memory hold uh, the video. They, they have taken it down from other services. They have sent uh, takedown notices to various websites. It has nothing to do, though, with CNN trying to erase the video from the Internet. It has everything to do with CNN monetizing the video. If you go to CNN.com now, you can find the video. And they'll show you the video, but you got to watch an ad. You got to watch an ad first. You got to watch an ad at the end. Uh, CNN wants to make money out of this, and they are they are raking in the bucks. It, it is There's no conspiracy here. This is a financial ploy by CNN to force you to go to CNN and see the video. You can go to CNN. You can see the video. Here's the audio of it. Yes, hello. Um, I'm wondering what um, uh, a, a staffer uh, would to do besides go to the press in Washington my daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's true. There you go. You, you can go to CNN and see that. That's where we got the audio from. Now, let, let's get into the merits of this. Uh, I did not believe Christine Blasey Ford's story. It seemed very opportunistic to wait for a man who 
I mean, the, the, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals was the second most powerful court in the country. Brett Kavanaugh was nominated for that. He got put on that court, and no one said anything. They waited for him to get on the Supreme Court, and then they decided to rough him up. And they decided to rough him up using uh, the allegations of a woman who named four people who could bear witness to her, and none of them had any recollection of it. And yet the media said it was it, it was the the you got to believe all women. It was the claim that was true. It was the claim that was true. And because she claimed it, we had to believe her. Never mind the evidence. She claimed it. She was going out on a limb. This was a powerful man. She was speaking truth to power. We got to believe her. The very same people who said that about Christine Blasey Ford would prefer you to not believe Tara Reid now. And frankly, I think that is the bigger aspect of the story. Here's her mom saying something happened, but out of respect for the guy, she didn't want to pursue it. So now the guy is running for president of the United States, and now she wants to pursue it. That doesn't add up to me any more than the Christine Blasey Ford story did. I, I, I don't think the story here is that Joe Biden did something to Tara Reid. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. It was in the early 90s. What I think the story here, though, is the hypocrisy. The, the Democrats held Brett Kavanaugh to a standard because he was going to be a powerful man on a powerful court. And he needed to be held accountable for what he had done. They want to make Joe Biden the most powerful man in the free world and don't want to hold him to that standard. The level of hypocrisy there is telling that they would hold up Christine Blasey Ford. And by the way, Tara Reid has more evidence than Christine Blasey Ford. There are more real-time contemporaneous reporting. Her mother called into Larry King Live. Tara Reid said her mom called in to CNN to Larry King Live at the time. And guess what? We found the audio. There it is. I've played it for you twice. Tara Reid says she told multiple people at the time, just like Christine Blasey Ford. The difference is that none of Christine Blasey Ford's friends remember it and all of Tara Reid's friends remember it. Now, you can say there's distance. And yes, you're absolutely right. There's distance. But if you will recall, the, who was the, the tennis star? Uh, who cre- or the golfer, the golfer, the, the, the professional female golfer who Christine Blasey Ford said could back her up, and the woman has no memory of it. In fact, told Christine Blasey Ford, please don't drag me into this because I don't remember it, and, and she got dragged into it either. Anyway, and then there's the, the, the Michael Avenatti woman who's now been investigated for making up the story, and all the other stories out there that were made up. Remember NBC News rushed to make a claim that uh, someone at a restaurant, I think they were in Denver or somewhere, uh, that 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 Brett Kavanaugh grabbed a girl and pushed her up against the wall and started kissing her. And that story turns out to have been made up, unsubstantiated and made up. Turns out he wasn't even uh, in the place that was claimed at the time, and we can document that. They rushed out with all sorts of allegations about Brett Kavanaugh. They rushed out any claim to amplify the case, to malign Brett Kavanaugh, to smear him. They did. You know, it, the Brett Kavanaugh situation is interesting as well because it is it is that situation where I, I know a, among my circle of friends who are conservatives and didn't vote for the president in 2016, uh, they didn't think he was a conservative. They didn't really think he would have conservatives backs. They didn't trust him. Uh, the Kavanaugh hearing 
was a defining moment of the Trump presidency in that many of the people who did not trust the president decided that that was the moment they would vote for him in 2020. He had Brett Kavanaugh's back. They would have his back. He stood up for Brett Kavanaugh in a way that most others wouldn't. And so they would have his back. And it's worked. It it, it has worked out well for the president in that regard. Some of them, you know, interestingly enough, I, I'm I'm sensing a, a trend among some conservatives who are in that camp that they didn't vote for the president in 2016. They'll vote for him in 2020, and now they're starting to think, I don't know about that. I think the president's press conferences have done him some damage, and they do now want to, to recalibrate, uh, and they are worried about the um, – about the polling and they are worried about Biden and you know, the, the, the polling, the, the 2016, the mistake in the 2016 polling, it's not that it was wrong. It's that it was national polling. Hillary Clinton did win the national popular vote uh, and the pollsters are getting better by focusing on the states that Trump won, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Iowa, places like that to see how he'll do. And, and the polling isn't going well. It's also not going well for some of the Senate candidates. It looks like the president's behavior in the last couple of weeks of making the press briefings combative with the press has actually made Republican senators a little more vulnerable, and they're starting to get antsy. Here's Jonathan Martin talking about this on CNN. Well, they're very concerned at these daily briefings. They believe, Wolf, that the president's uh, using these press briefings to lash out at the press, at his critics uh, in the ranks of the nation's governors, at basically all comers, is imperiling not just his re-election prospects, Wolf, but it's also starting to uh, undercut some of those candidates and his own party running for the House and Senate. And the bottom line is, if he keeps doing these uh, in the minds of a lot of folks in his own party, that he's going to create real political peril going into the fall for the GOP. Now, you can say that's wrong and feel free to say that that's wrong, but that's the current sentiment within the GOP. I know because I'm talking to the people Jonathan Martin's talking to, and they're uh, ranking members in the House and the Senate on the Republican side. I know one ranking Republican member who thinks he's lost his reelection bid, and he attributes a lot of it to the president's handling of the virus, that his district is, is livid. Now, what I tell candidates all the time is know when you're the minority, even when you think you're right. And there are a lot of Republicans in the minority who think that the president can do no wrong and that these briefings are helping him. It does not bear out in any of the polling out there. And you can say you're okay with Susan Collins losing reelection. You can totally say that, but you're losing a seat in the Senate and you're making it more likely that the Republican, that the Democrats pick up the seat. And, you know, there is some sentiment in a fraction of the Republican Party that at this point is thinking, you know what? Might as well let the Democrats have it all. I mean, these Republican senators, they don't have the president's back anyway. Might as well let the Democrats have it. But that is a reflection. If, if the president loses re-election, he more likely than not costs the Republicans the Senate. Uh, there goes Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat to the left. Uh, what about some of these, these ancient uh, conservatives on the Supreme Court? You know, Clarence Thomas isn't getting any younger. There are real-world impacts to some of these decisions. 
Uh, that is why the president has curtailed his White House press briefings. They're going to shake up how the press briefings are done now. The president is going to allow the experts to be on the stage more. Why? Because his own advisors have convinced him he's doing himself more harm than good. Originally, if you recall, the president's polling went up in response to his handling of the virus and the press conferences. But at the time, the president was letting the experts do most of the talking. As the president has done more and more talking, his real-world polling has gone down across the board, even in the Rasmussen poll which is the most favorable poll to the president, he's gone down. So now the president's decided to get back to the basics and let the experts do the talking. And that's actually a good thing. That might actually help him with his reelection. So I can feel a sneeze coming on. Let's see if I can make it to the break. If I suddenly drop out, it's because I've hit the mute button so that I can sneeze without rupturing your eardrums as you listen. So at the bottom of the hour, Mark Butler, the uh, labor commissioner, is going to join me to talk about uh, what's actually happening out there in Georgian labor market. It's We went from 3.5% unemployment, the lowest in state history, to 20% unemployment in a month. And there's a backlog of claims. As you can imagine, they've been overwhelmed with claims. I want to talk to him a little bit about that and everything else they're they're facing. Uh, Stacey Abrams, of course, is using this. Uh, to to try to make a, a name for herself and and be Biden's vice president, I you know, so it, it, there's a dirty little secret that you may not know, although it gets talked about enough now. You may now know it in, in Hollywood, movie studios campaign for Best Picture. Uh, if you will recall, what what was the um um what was Shakespeare? So Shakespeare in Love. Uh, won the Academy Award in what year was it? The 71st, um, yeah, the, it was the, the, the Academy Awards, I forget when it was, um, in any event, years ago in 1999, yes, uh, 1999 Academy Awards, uh, Shakespeare in Love won that picture. It was a Harvey Weinstein movie, uh, and it was one of those where overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here are the other ones. Uh, The Thin Red Line, Saving Private Ryan, Life is Beautiful, Elizabeth, and Shakespeare in Love. And Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan. And it was very clear, although uh, Spielberg got Best Director, it was very clear that there had been an aggressive campaign by Harvey Weinstein to get Shakespeare in Love that win. It, It was a big play by him. He wanted it, and they won. And it really became um, a, a deep frustration for Hollywood. And it was one of those things where Hollywood began to push back on the open campaigning for Best Picture. Well, the campaigns have continued, but ever since then, they've had to be a little more civil about it. They've had to be a little more discreet about it. Uh, Netflix poured a lot of money in these past couple of years to win some pictures, and and Netflix has, has typically lost because it's been so open about campaigning. And the same, I think, kind of holds true for the vice presidential race. In the vice presidential race, you can campaign to be vice president, but you can't campaign openly. 
when you start campaigning too openly for it, you, you give people the heebie-jeebies. They, they don't want to do it. It's a dangerous precedent, and, and Abrams is doing that. One of the ways she's doing it is she's going on the warpath against Trump and Pence and Brian Kemp. You've called this decision by Governor Kemp a, a political decision. Um, I'm just curious how you think this benefits him politically. He's taking grief from the president. You and the president are on the same side on this one when it comes to the speed of reopening Georgia. So it doesn't look like it's benefiting him politically, but what, what's your take on it? Well, I give Donald Trump zero credit for backing away from this because he incited it with his liberation of the state's narrative. I think Brian Kemp was responding to that call and decided to wrongheadedly move forward. And unfortunately, as a result, he found himself crossways with the president, with Mike Pence nodding pathetically at the same time about ingesting Clorox as the president gave more false information to the public. But I think all three of these men have misserved Georgia and misserved the country. How would you launch a national testing strategy if you were running the federal government right now? I think what Congress has put in place, the investment in testing equipment and funding for our frontline workers, especially for our hospitals, is critical. But I would also be encouraging states like Georgia and the other southern states and Midwestern states that have refused to expand Medicaid to do so immediately. Part of testing is making sure people trust that they can go and be tested. And right now there's inadequate equipment and an adequate strategy. We should increase production. We should make certain it's not simply the testing that's available, but the mechanics, the swabs, the vials, and that we are funding people on the front lines to do this work, to put themselves in harm's way, to make sure we can test, trace, and track. Kind of what the White House is doing, you know, kind of what the White House actually is doing and what the states are doing uh, is what she wants to do. It's, it's really not any different, but she's campaigning pretty openly to be vice president. And, and I just think that that's probably not going to do her any favors. I, I my, my suspicion is, She's Listen, uh, the reality is that Stacey Abrams has only won a state house race in Georgia. She's never won anything else. And and when it dawns on liberals that actually she wasn't she wasn't winning uh, the governorship, she might have gotten into a runoff. I, I think that's a strike against her as well. But, hey, people can dream. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here awaiting uh, the insurance commissioner of the state of Georgia, or not insurance commissioner, labor commissioner, Mark Butler, who's going to be joining us here momentarily. In the meantime, I, I want to spend a little bit on the Georgia situation. The uh, president of the Atlanta NAACP was on TV talking about reopening the state. Listen to this. We still have an uptick and we don't have not even a, a 1% of, a, of the uh state of Georgia residents have been tested. We had over 10 million residents and we down in the thousands who've been tested beyond, uh, and we got over 21,000 patients now, 22,000 patients now. So it is just too soon. It is contrary to the experts and we need to follow the scientists, follow the people who know what this disease and other diseases are about, follow their lead and be careful. We want to, uh, if, if you go back to work, you're earning money, but if you wind up in the hospital and on, on sick bed or even death, what good did that do? We Understood. think it's premature. We think the governor was rash. The Democrats in the state want the governor to um, reverse his decision. That's not going to happen. Uh, already people are beginning to venture out, and I think that's going to – we're going to continue to have impact in the state. We're going to continue to see – 
the situation uh, go forward. And we do need to understand that there actually is an impact in the black community disproportionate to the, the white community. I noticed this weekend when I was out grocery shopping, uh, my sixth grocery store run, uh, disproportionately it was white people with face masks on. And my guess is that uh, disproportionately uh, there's a harder access, tougher access uh, in the black community to find the face masks. Um, it, it's, it's not that they're not doing it. It's access and resources. And that as well is going to cause problems uh, within minority communities. And we're also seeing, particularly in, in Hispanic community uh, examples, for example, the, the larger communities uh, of households of, of intergenerational families and friends living together uh, among migrant workers. That tends to be the, the hotspots, so hospital or nursing homes, rather. And those situations tend to have larger impact, and that is problematic. And it's going to be something that needs to be addressed uh, over time here in the state of Georgia and elsewhere. Uh, the, the nursing home situation, you just can't, uh, you can't underappreciate it. We need to come up with real answers for what to do about nursing homes. Now, uh, joining me uh, by phone, the Labor Commissioner of the state of Georgia, Mark Butler. How are you, sir? Tired, but... All things considered, okay. I I bet you are. You, you and your whole staff have your work cut out for you. And I, I wanted really to get you on and, and let you talk about that because I have heard, I think I heard you say or someone from your staff say that y'all are dealing with a situation that even at the height of the, the financial downturn in 2008, uh, y'all are being outmanned and, and overrun with claims now. Well, I mean, yeah, if you take a look at the amount of claims that we've already processed uh, in just about four and a half, five weeks' time, uh, it's basically more claims, it's over a million, than we did in the last three years combined. Uh, it's also more claims than, uh, than were processed in the entire worst year of the recession back in 2009, and all that in a compacted uh, span of weeks. But not only that, but then the federal government has also uh, instituted three new programs. Uh, well, I said they instituted. They said they're going to, you know, they put them out there and told us to do them that we're having uh, to put together. One of those programs, which never existed uh, before, uh, that we've had to build an application for from scratch. Wow. And, and I also, I don't know if this applies to Georgia. I assume it does. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal about so many state unemployment systems uh, being built on old programming languages from the 70s and, and still relying on those old computer sources that are now causing problems. Well, you know, and, and the thing is, if they would have done a little more research on that article, they would have found that that even some of the states uh, that have newer systems, uh, for example, Florida, Florida, Florida has a much newer system than we do. I think their system may be about six or seven years old, and it's built on a modern architecture. Um, and we're processing uh, claims much faster than they are, uh, way faster. Uh, and so, you know, the, the unemployment claims software issue is a problem that almost every single state is having, and it's had for years. Uh, we were actually... Uh, in a project in partnership with two other states uh, to modernize our system. But once it got down to the near the end of it, we started looking at the product that they had created and it was actually not going to be any better 
than what we currently had. And so, you know, why end up paying, you know, a lot of money for something that's not going to get you where you need to go any better. So the good luck, you know, the good news for us here in Georgia is we're not dependent on some outside contractor to make all these changes that we're having to do on the fly. Uh, all of our software is being built in-house. And even though I know some people say, well, that's maybe that's what the problem is. No, actually, if you do compare us to other states, uh, we are able to implement and make changes at a much faster rate and do it much easier because all the applications are being built in-house and we got a great team doing it. Well, speaking of your team, I, I know there's got to be a level of, of both frustration and exhaustion among the staff there right now because, I, I mean, I'm hearing from people trying to get a hold of, of uh, team members at the Department of Labor and just uh, voicemails overrun, people overrun, everybody's got questions. It, it, it's a, a friend of mine who is a nurse and her husband actually works for you was saying that th they're in this household now where half of their friends are calling to talk to the wife who's a nurse and half of them are calling to talk to the husband about unemployment and everybody's become an expert. Well, yeah, I mean, because, uh, I, mean, I mean, right now, um, I didn't realize how many social media accounts that I could be messaged on until the last four weeks. Uh, I mean, I'm probably, I mean, I'm handling hundreds of requests uh, just through that right along and, and getting, getting people help. Uh, but, you know, when you talk about a million people filing unemployment all at once, uh, and let's say you get 80% of them right, okay, and there's no problems, that 20% that has issues, whether that, you know, maybe there's an ID stop or something's not matching up with their name or uh, is a multitude of things that can stop a claim. You know, maybe you don't have enough wages. Show. Like we even had one person that said, you know, I've been working for the same employer for two years and it says I don't have enough wages. And, and then when we went and looked and the employer all this time when they've been filing the wages for this uh, employee had put their social security number in wrong. So we never had any record. <laughs> That's the kind of person that needs to be able to get in touch with us. But a lot of the calls we're getting are just, Hey, I just want to know the status of my claim or uh, I got paid for this week. When's my next check coming? Um, and we need to encourage people to stop calling for those types of things because we do have individuals out there that have serious stops on their claim that we do need to talk to them about to, 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 to remove those stops. We need to verify some things with them. Uh, you know, obviously when we're catching them in house, we're calling them, but, it, uh, but you know, uh, obviously getting through to us right now when you've got, you know, 200,000 people calling a day uh, with a thousand employees statewide, I mean, there's no amount of, you know, call center that you could go out and contract with that would actually put a dent in that. Wow. Well, looking at, at the projections, I know we've gone from roughly 3.5% unemployment to, I think I, I read 20 the other day, which is just amazing in a month. But looking forward, what you're thinking about the reopening and how the economy might respond to it over time? Do you, do you guys even make those sorts of projections in-house? Well, I mean, the only thing that we did, we worked on it is is and I and I actually I heard um, I was uh, I heard your show a little bit the other day and I tried to to call in couldn't get through <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah funny uh, but uh, somebody had called in and asked about the the three hundred dollars ex exception on the unemployment and you were trying to and you were actually correct in how you answered it. Um, one of the things that we looked at the very beginning of this and we worked with the governor's office to uh, suspend uh, this code section so I could put an emergency rule in, it had to do with the $300 exception. That didn't exist before. And 
the thinking was when we start opening back up, we know it's going to be a slow roll. And so a lot of people could be get called back to their jobs and their pay is going to be, uh, you know, reduced significantly. Uh, and so we worked it out to where you, the first $300 of your wages per week, uh, we're going to, uh, it, it, they're going to get an exception. You, they're not going to count against your state benefit. And any amount over the $300 you earn per week will just subtract dollar for dollar from your state benefit. And you need to be, and you need to collect at least $1 of state benefit in order to qualify for the 600 and the CARES Act. We did this so that way uh, people that have been hurt because their income is still going to be down and they still got bills to pay, they can still qualify during this period until things get to rolling again. Um, and we think they can really help not only with individuals um, uh, to make sure they're able to still pay their bills and actually go back to work and encourage them to go back to work, uh, but it also can, uh, you know, it's also going to be able to help the bottom line of a lot of uh, state local government uh, taxes too. Uh, to because to, 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 you're going to be able to equalize up that person's income that's going to be probably half of what it normally would be. You know, th- that is something I think that has largely flown under the radar here is the impact on uh, tax revenue in the states. I, I know the federal government's now looking at this, but it, it, that's going to be a problem. And it, I, I guess it's going to be a problem as well across the board with uh, future unemployment as well as, as employers don't have the employees coming in and things. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, little issues you got to look at. Now, one of the big issues we hear people talking about is like, Oh gosh, is the trust fund going to run out of money? And I'd say, don't worry about that. You know, that's my job. I'll worry about that. I mean, when I first became labor commissioner, we owed the federal government almost a billion dollars from the recession. We paid all that back and got us back up to almost $2.6 billion in the trust fund. Now, if this keeps going at the rate it's going, we'll probably drain that trust fund in the next six to seven months. Uh, but it, when that happens, though, we can borrow money from the Fed at an interest rate that's uh, not too bad um, and keep paying benefits. So that's not a, uh, that's not of a concern. And, you know, we've We've been in debt before and paid it back, and we can do it again. So, uh, so there's going to be that concern. But yeah, the, you know, there's a lot of people that are worried about, you know, the the uh, there's going to be a big revenue hole uh, from sales tax um, and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's one of the big reasons um, why we went to the governor and said, look, here's an idea. Let's let's increase the the income exemption on unemployment. And you know, I mean, if you take somebody that was Let's say you got somebody that was getting the maximum amount of state benefit, uh, three sixty-five, and let's say they were in a job and they're getting and they're bringing it back, but their pay is significantly decreased, and they're going to be under that um, formula where it's your where it's the three hundred dollar exemption plus your weekly benefit. You add those together and then subtract a dollar, right? And in this case, it would be. Uh, $664. If you're under that income per week threshold, you're still going to get the 600 from the feds. That puts you, you know, over almost $1,300 a week. Right. Uh, that can generate a pretty good bit of income for you and also allow you to spend that money on whatever it is you're spending it on, whether it's your rent or groceries or whatever, and also the, the income tax portion. And I think in the end, um, if the employers work, work it this way and ease their folks back in, it can really help us out all the way around. It's going to help out the claimant, the employer, and uh, the tax revenue. 
Yeah, I hope so. I, I hope. Let, let me ask you one last question before we get out of here. Is there anything you want people? You got a statewide platform now. We're, we're all over the state with this program, in addition to the evening program. And I'll make sure uh, my, my morning and my evening folks get to hear this conversation. Uh, what do you want people to know, bottom line, from the Labor Department right now? Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, my folks are working extremely hard. I mean, we're, you know, uh, all of our offices, even though they're not open to the public right now, they are open and the people are showing up for work every day, uh, putting themselves at risk. They're putting in 10 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, It's a mountain of claims that have to be processed in an extremely short period of time. We are doing a lot of innovations right now, uh, using technology, doing some things that we never either had to do before uh, or never thought to do before. But, you know, a lot of times when you have a crisis like this, it's kind of the mother of invention. And so, you know, we're we're seeing some avenues where we can make things uh, more efficient and make things go faster. And our primary goal is, to get our families the help they need as quickly as possible. Uh, so a lot of our, you know, think about my employees right now. Uh, they're spending a lot of time away from their family so they can help yours. Uh, and I know that people are getting frustrated. I know my folks are getting frustrated too, and they're under a lot of pressure. But, I mean, they're, they're going in there and they're uh, doing the best they can to make this uh, very difficult situation as easy as possible. Commissioner Mark Butler, I sure appreciate you taking time to stop by and and keep up the good work. I, I know people out there are depending on you guys, and y'all know it an extraordinary pressure and and just performing well. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate you having us on and uh, helping us get the word out. There's a, a lot of new stuff going on out there, uh, and it's a uh, it's been a big challenge. But I've been very impressed with how uh, my team and my employees are rising to the occasion. I know some people have been fussing and saying, "Oh, you guys." Don't seem like you're doing anything, but I can assure you um, uh, my folks are working extremely hard. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Commissioner Mark Butler, I want to play you a couple of clips uh, from Dr. Burks, one of which I played uh, earlier, but there are some more. She was making the media rounds. Uh, Here's one of them. I think we're getting a lot of information out of these isolated outbreaks that are occurring, whether they're occurring in prisons or among essential workers in packing plants or specifically gatherings that came together, whether it was a wedding or an event. And when you look at those epidemics, it isn't until you start seeing symptomatic groups. But when you go in there and test, you find a lot of people have the virus and may not ever develop symptoms. And I think we're really starting to look at this in a very careful way to understand how we do surveillance. And so in the guidelines that were put out, because we could start to see this even a couple of weeks ago, we were very careful in the guidelines to recognize two parts of monitoring this epidemic. One, continuing to diagnose cases. Those are people who come forward with fever or other symptoms. But secondly, setting up surveillance. What we call this actually sentinel monitoring of specific populations that we know may be of greater risk where you want to find those asymptomatic cases early. Long-term care facilities. 
among Native Americans, inner city metro areas where there may be multi-generational household, to really screen people before they develop symptoms, to really understand if the virus is in the community and increasing or decreasing. This is a novel approach. We haven't had to do this often with respiratory diseases. And so we're bringing together those two aspects to really have a comprehensive plan working with each and every governor and state and local official to make sure that both components, diagnosis and monitoring for um, the, the populations at greatest risk simultaneously. Now, the media really likes Dr. Burks when she says things like that. But then Dr. Burks was on with Jake Tapper and he asked her about the, the bleach and UV comments from the president at Thursday's press briefing. And I played this in the first hour. I, I, I need to set up the context for you here. This is Dr. Burks on that. It bothers me that this is still in the news cycle because I think we're missing the bigger pieces of what we need to be doing as an American people to continue to protect one another. And we should be having that dialogue about asymptomatics. We should be having that dialogue about this unique clotting that we're seeing. And, you know, we're the first country that really had young people to this degree. Italy and Europe is about eight years older than us as a median age. So this is the first experience of this virus um, in an open society where we really can understand what's happening to every different age groups. These are the things that we should be talking about and focusing on. So I think as a as a scientist and a public health official and a researcher, sometimes I worry that we don't get the information to the American people that they need when we continue to bring up something that was from Thursday night. And as a result of her saying that, there are members of the press who now think she needs to go away. Here's Patrick Gaspard, a, a progressive pundit on one of the talk shows this weekend. I was just saying there are so many things that are happening there. This is not just a failing of uh, President Trump. Uh, those of us who've worked in the White House understand that what is said at that podium really matters. And the governor of Maryland reported that hundreds of calls flooded their lines about whether or not these disinfectants could work on COVID. But there's another utter defection of leadership there. While all of us are sheltering at home, Dr. Burks is sheltering in silence there in that moment. I know Dr. Burks. I served with Dr. Burks uh, when I saw her speaking truth to power and saving lives in Africa and elsewhere in her leadership at HIV and AIDS. But she has to appreciate that her silence there is a damnable silence. Matthew said that the president should deflect to his experts. Those experts have, have failed uh, in this response. Now, not only do we have the silence of Dr. Burks in that moment, but for the last many weeks now, Dr. Burks has given us charts, not backed up with clear data that's shared. There's no national strategy on testing. It's every state for themselves. So there's utter failure across the board. And GOP leadership is also failing in its silence here. They don't speak up when American lives are imperiled. They seem to speak up when the polling shows that their seats are imperiled. So Dr. Burks needs to be fired because she's not speaking up against the president. What would happen if she spoke up against the president? Would they prefer that someone more partisan be in her position? Remember, there's been an ongoing campaign by the left to try to drive out of public service anyone uh, who works for the president with any level of credibility. Uh, think of what we would be, the situation we would be in if we didn't have people like Fauci and Burks there. And, and that's what the left has wanted for years now is to have no credible people working in the White House. Um, 
Thank goodness they weren't successful at that, even though they continue to try now with Dr. Burks. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia and welcome to News Radio KWN AM 1420 FM 101.3 up in Triton, uh, the, the Tennessee Valley, the Tennessee Valley. Uh, it is, it's fantastic to be up there. Appreciate them picking up the show starting today. Uh, listening a little bit of delay up there, but oh, I'm just kind of sad. I'm looking at their website and it's got the uh, it's got the sports scores and game canceled, game canceled, game canceled. Just sad. Life is picking back up though here in Georgia. Uh, but thank you to uh, to, to WKWN up there uh, for picking up the show and for all the stations carrying the show. And I want to spend time now on what's happening in Georgia and where we're going to move forward as the state begins to slowly reopen. I want to give you some data on where we are as a state and give you some of the perspective based on the Georgia Department of Public Health and some of the numbers out there. Right now, we have a total 23,481 people have gotten COVID-19, 4,377 hospitalized, and 916 dead. Uh, you need to understand that the the hospitalizations and the total they're cumulative, so it doesn't mean there are 4,377 people currently in the hospital and 23,000 currently infected. Just overall, in the last we are in, a, into eight weeks, and I want to put in perspective for you, just so you have some of the data, because uh, the eighth week of the flu season came towards the end of February here uh, from the beginning of the year, and we've got some uh, we got some data for you. So by the eighth week of the flu season in Georgia, there were 2,129 people hospitalized uh, for the flu or pneumonia, and there were 17 people who died in that eight-week period. In the eight weeks of COVID-19, there are 4,377 people hospitalized and 916 dead. So way more people dead, and these are only based on positive tests. Now, I know there are people out there. In fact, I'm getting emails from people say, wait a second, wait a second. Hospitals are being paid extra money if they code people as dying of COVID-19, yes. The question is by how much, and that's only a new mandate in the last couple of weeks, and this number's been holding fairly steady, uh, above 3%. It is a global average. You're going to have to convince me that everyone on planet Earth is having some level of, of global grand conspiracy to think that uh, Georgia or any other state is overinflating their numbers by so much when the world average on deaths is 5%. When you take Italy and China out of it, it's about 3 to 4%. So we're being pretty consistent there with the way things are going. Listen, I, I, I know that there's a tendency on people to, to create some conspiracies or to disbelieve anything. The problem is, who do you believe? Do you only believe the people who are telling you what you want to hear? And increasingly, that's what's happening is, oh, I don't believe really 800 people have died of this virus. Here's a YouTube video that suggests that they're overcounting, and I'm going to believe that video as opposed to the actual data. All I'm All I can do is give you the data. If you don't want to believe the data, that's on you. It's not on me. I'm trying to provide you the data, and I'm trying to use apples-to-apples comparison. So, for example, I'm giving you the positive test confirmations from the Georgia Department of Public Health for the flu and the positive test confirmations from the Georgia Department of Health for COVID-19. If you don't want to believe the data, don't believe the data. I, I don't really care at this point. There's so many people out there who don't want to believe anything that only goes. You, do you know, for as many people as I know who believe that the count is overstated, 
I know the same number of people are more who believe the count is understated because of all the people dying at home. I actually interviewed doctors on Friday, uh, a number of doctors. I interviewed the the head of infectious disease for Piedmont Health uh, Hospitals in Atlanta, uh, the head of their cardiology department, the head of their pulmonology department, an additional pulmonologist, the head of the uh, Georgia Emergency Room Physicians Network, and a state senator, Kate Kirkpatrick, who had the virus. And the prevailing sentiment is that the data is right uh, and people should stop listening to all those who want to undermine the data, uh, but that also the data is suggesting we can reopen the state. And that's really interesting. One of the doctors I talked to was deeply skeptical of reopening the state right now. But one of the other doctors put it in, in perspective here that we're in an economic crisis as much as we're in a healthcare crisis. And while shelter in place was the right thing to do to stabilize the situation when we're dealing with a virus where so much of it is unknown, the larger issue is now that we've stabilized the virus and the trend lines are good, how do we get the state back to work? Let me give you the other data, and this is the good news aspect of it. Our high for daily cases reported was April 14th, 854 people that day were positive for the virus. That was April 14th. On April 20th, it was 679 people. On April 21st, 586 people. On April 22nd, 463. On April 23rd, 260. On April 24th, 151. On April 25th, uh, there were 37 on April 26th, there were five. Now those last three, um, the 24th is 151. The 25th is double digits, 37. And the 26th is five. Those numbers will go up because there's a testing delay over the weekend. So we will see those numbers go up. They're not expected to spike dramatically though. They're still expected to be in decline. And so while we're dealing with the issue of a virus in the state, we've got to deal with reopening the state. There are parts of the state that should not reopen, if we're honest about it. The Darty County area is just badly, badly hit. So for perspective, uh, let me give you some of the numbers here. In Fulton County, there are 2,549 cases and 94 deaths. In DeKalb County, there are 1,800 cases and 36 deaths. In Gwinnett County, there's 1,504 cases and 47 deaths. And in Doherty County, which is southwest Georgia, Albany, there are 1,470 cases, 108 deaths. The only area of the state that has triple-digit deaths. And then Cobb County is 1,428 cases, 75 deaths. Hall County, that's Gainesville, 1,033 cases and 11 deaths. And then it drops to Clayton County. 641 cases and 21 deaths. And then it drops again to Henry County, 451 cases and 10 deaths. And then it drops again to Cherokee County, 347 cases and 10 deaths. And then you go Richmond has 360 cases. Sumter has 356 cases. Carroll has 326. Lee has 302. Mitchell has 290. Bartow has 286. Douglas has 278. Muskogee, 275. Forsyth, 252. Bibb, 248. Houston 209, Chatham 206, Early 198, Upson 197, Spalding 190, Coweta 188, and down we go. 
there are places in the state that have triple digit or or quadruple digit cases, but they're managing it. I mean, look at Hall County. Hall County, that is the Gainesville area. There are 1,033 cases there, but there are only 11 people who've died. In Clayton County, there are 641 cases, but 21 people have died. What gives? Or look at Sumter County. Sumter County has 356 cases and 21 people have died. Uh, so the same number of people who have died as Clayton County, which has double the cases. What's going on in those areas? Well, let me first tell you. So Sumter County is Americus. And Sumter County is up Highway 19 from Albany, north of Lee County. And it has been impacted with the spillover effect down there. And the issue is Southwest Georgia is overwhelmed right now. But the metro Atlanta area, the hospitals aren't overwhelmed. Again, I talked to all these doctors and even a doctor in Savannah in, in an emergency room has said they're not really overwhelmed right now. But they recognize there are parts of the state that are. So obviously there are parts of the state that should not behave as if they're open for business. But then there are parts of the state that maybe they can behave as if they're open for business. And more and more people are venturing outside. The governor is coming under some sort of a coming under all sorts of attacks. Democrats and Republicans like uh, Jonathan Swan, one of the best sourced reporters who covers the White House, has a story out about why the president turned on Brian Kemp. And here's what he says behind the scenes. Um, one advisor to the president said, you got to understand Donald Trump feels he made Brian Kemp and he's right. Would it hurt Brian Kemp to be a little more grateful and take the president's advice once in a while? He would not be governor without Trump. I, I, I got to tell you, that's actually not true. When you look at the runoff numbers in Georgia, Brian Kemp was winning early voting ahead of Casey Cagle in every county, including Hall County. Brian Kemp was going to win it without the president. The president just padded his margins. And the Kemp team knows this, even if the Trump team won't recognize it. Now, that being said, uh, Cody Hall, who is the governor's press secretary, says Governor Kemp is grateful for President Trump's leadership in the fight against COVID-19 and values his insights as our state takes measure steps that will protect the lives and livelihoods of all Georgians. So, you know, here's the reality. Uh, Kemp, by the way, the president is also irritated. Kemp did not pick Doug Collins. That has something to do with it as well. But uh, the reality is the virus isn't going to go away. So we got to find some way to reopen the state, don't we? We, we got to find some way to accommodate people. And at this point, listen, there was a time where we needed to all shelter in place because the virus was still spreading. But it's very clear from the state data, the virus is now declining. Warm weather is here. You heard the White House say the other day that sunlight and warm weather actually will slow the virus. High humidity will slow the virus. Hello, uh, you want high humidity and warm weather? Welcome to Georgia in the summertime. So it's beginning to recede. It is. Meanwhile, we've got businesses that are collapsing. We've got small businesses that are filing bankruptcy. We've got people sitting on the sidelines who want to get back in. Y'all, we got to reopen the state. It's time. Now, 
a lot of us, I, I would say we probably need to wait another week to comply with the White House. It is obvious that we're not actually complying with the White House because there were a couple of spikes in there in, in data. The White House wanted 14 consecutive days of decline of COVID-19. We got a couple of days that it went up uh, and it not, not higher than our peak on April 14th, but still higher than the preceding days. And the reason, though, and the reason the, the, the governor says we can still open is because those spikes come from nursing homes and, and elder care facilities. We we knew that they were going to spike. We knew that was going to happen. That is why we are where we are in, in, in the state and the governor's office believes it's all manageable. If the governor is wrong, let's just be real honest. If the governor is wrong, we're in for a world of hurt. If the governor is wrong, then we're in a situation where the virus is going to spread again and we may have to go back into a lockdown. And I don't know that there's a will to go into a lockdown. I, I, I don't know that there is. If the governor is right, though, he's charting a course forward for us to get back uh, to an economy that is roaring because the Georgia economy was roaring before this virus hit. I mean, we had the record low unemployment in the state of Georgia. And he's trying to get us back to that. I don't know whether or not he'll be able to. I don't know whether the virus will spread again. I, I got to tell you, I was in public yesterday. And I don't mean to stereotype anyone, but I'm just going to describe for you the guy. Older, overweight man wearing a Confederate flag ball cap going the opposite direction in the aisles from the way if you go to a Publix now you can go up an aisle and down another aisle you, you, they've got a pattern to go up and down aisles now they've got signage on this on the floors and now hanging up on the aisle saying don't come this way you got to go the other way keep everybody flowing in the same direction now half the people are ignoring it this guy is is walking down through the beer aisle wearing his Confederate flag ball cap looking at anyone who's wearing a mask and almost everyone is wearing a mask and he is visibly incensed and telling people that they are overplaying this, that it's no big deal. I mean, he's he doesn't even know the people, and he's telling them it's no big deal. Or consider the woman I saw on Bass Road here in Macon who was eating a Dairy Queen ice cream cone while texting and driving and had her mask pulled down below her chin. These are potential Darwin Award-winning recipients. And it is people like this who are going to spread the virus again if it gets out of control. It's not going to be the governor. The governor's out there telling everybody you need to be responsible. Still shelter in place. Remember, we're still under a shelter in place order in Georgia. So if you're not going to the grocery store or going to get your haircut, you got to go home. You can't go hang out anywhere. But there are people who have long thought this was all overstated, who don't think it's a big deal, who some of them think they've already got it because they got sick in in, in uh, November or December. They said, oh, yeah, I felt bad and had a headache. Must have been the virus. So I'm immune now so I can go out. They're the ones who are going to spread the virus again. And that's not going to blow up on them. That's going to blow up on the governor unless people do what they're supposed to do. Uh, be careful when you go out there. That, that That's the bottom line issue here. Be careful when you go out there. Wear a face mask still. I know it's it, it sounds goofy, but wear a face mask when you go out there. If you can find them. And just be safe. That's all. Just be smart. Wash your hands still.
Avoid crowds. Don't let people cough on you. And perhaps we can reopen the state. It's one thing for the governor to say, let's go. It is a whole other thing completely to get everyone on the same page on how to do it. The phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Tom, up in Gainesville, you're going to be first today. Welcome. Good morning, Eric. I hope you and yours are doing well and all there, all the people there at the show doing this Absolutely. Uh, good Thank public you. service for us. Thanks. Um, before I get to my point, RT.Live shows um, all but eight states less than 1.0 this morning. Yeah. Okay. Now my point, just for you, uh, and it's real hard to get onto that website for some reason. Anyway, you you just can't go there. You have to link it from somebody else who's talking about it. But that's been my experience. Maybe I'm just stupid. Um, When you went on your shopping uh, 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 safari, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and I get it. And you know what? And I've done it too. Maybe not six six stores in one day. So then you can go back and clean up and cover up and, and disinfect everything and not have to do that again for a while. I get all that, but is that a, is, is that a mini spreading expedition that, you know, is, is a presents a real dilemma. I'm not, I'm not getting upset with you. I'm just asking the question. Oh yeah. I I mean, it could, uh, but also if you've got groceries that you need and you can't find it from one store right now, you got to go to the other stores. Uh, but yes. So, I mean, that's why you gotta, you gotta wear your face mask and use your hand sanitizer. Uh, and, and I think most people are, but I mean, this is part of the, this is part of the problem. We've been trying to order most of our stuff from, from home. Like for example, uh, all of our paper products, I've just been ordering them online when I can find them from Amazon or Walmart. So to avoid that, uh, but when you need meat right. and you need flour and your grocery store's out of it, what do you do? I know. Yeah, you remember Paul Harvey? What 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 about Paul Harvey? He said this, and this was very prescient back in the day when when we only had the uh, influenza to deal with. He said during this time of year, and now more than ever with COVID, which he didn't know about, he said, "Do not step forward and shake hands. Step backwards and salute." That's a good idea. We're going to have to come up yes, with something sir. other than handshaking. Although I got to tell you, Tom, I, and thanks very much for the phone call. I still, when I see people, I want to reach out and shake their hands. Like I can't do that right now. Uh, maybe we need to go to the Asian model of just bowing to each other. Boy, that'll give you a, a, a sense of ego. I, I may have my staff start bowing to me instead of shaking my hand. <laughs> I'm afraid I might get a middle finger salute from instead. <laughs> Oh, the the routines we have to change. For those of you who are just tuned in, uh, so I had to go to the grocery store yesterday. There is a flour shortage right now, and it is very hard to find flour, and we needed it. And it took me six grocery stores to find what I was looking for, and I finally was able to find it. Um, And it's just it's hard to find stuff, and and also chicken breasts. Uh, that was hard to find yesterday. I had to go to several stores to find chicken breast. And normally that is outside the norm. Uh, and increasingly, everything you need is inside. It's just really random what stores are out of. Like, uh, for example, our local Publix across the street from us has been out of Heinz ketchup. Uh, but I went up to Ingalls and Forsyth, 15 minutes north of me. They, they, they had ketchup coming out the wazoo, Heinz ketchup. Uh, it's just, it, it's fascinating. Also, the number of things that aren't being bought. 
Apparently, no one eats cauliflower pizza crusts, and I can't blame them, uh, but they're all over the stores. If you want a frozen cauliflower pizza, I guarantee you can find it at every store in America right now. Um, it just, it, wow. Uh, also, uh, the, the RT, the rate of transmission rate in Georgia now, according to the RT.live site, is 0.79. That means the virus is winding down in Georgia. It had spiked back up the other day above one, uh, but with the newest data, it's gone back down. In fact, it's looking very, very good in the state right now. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia and now beyond. Uh, and the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Nikki Haley has started a petition uh, to stop communist China. Uh, our former South Carolina governor and ambassador to the United Nations uh, wants Congress to step in and get tough with China, in particular investigate China's role in the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, in their stranglehold on critically important supplies, like, for example, medical equipment and pharmaceuticals, uh, investigate uh, what international organizations are doing cooperating with China and also support Taiwan, among other things. Uh, my friend Tim Chapman, uh, who was with Heritage Action for America, he's been here on the program before, talking about uh, HAVA, he has moved over uh, to Nikki Haley's new organization and is joining me to talk about it. Good morning. How are you? Hey, Eric. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Uh, so, if, Tim, if you wouldn't mind to start with, uh, explain to people what Stand for America is. Stand for America is a policy organization founded by Ambassador Nikki Haley. We advocate conservative policy solutions to the issues we face as a country today. So we are uh, excited to be pushing on this issue of China. We think it's really important. The, the petition is at StopCommunistChina.com. And I think the American people are just kind of waking up to the fact that China has gotten um, kind of a free ride uh, for far too long. And this is a major adversary on the global stage, and it's one that we need to begin to take very seriously. And I'm glad you raised that issue. I've, I've had this discussion with a number of friends of mine who are sympathetic to Chinese students coming here. And increasingly, in fact, I had this conversation with a, a dear friend of mine the other day who lost a friend of his, a longtime friend from China, when he began to raise the issue of the communist government and, and its complicity in covering up COVID-19. Uh, and this this friend from China severed all ties, didn't, didn't want to talk about it, couldn't engage with it. And increasingly, he's noting that we're seeing Chinese students coming to this country. They're getting educated in the United States, uh, and they're not actually investing in American democracy. In fact, many times they, they then go back to China with their learning. And he's wondering, why do we continue to, to treat China as if it's a third world government in need of our help when increasingly it is an adversary? Well, you know, I think there was there was this theory uh, that was popular in all the Western nations for quite some time, which was that as we move into a globalist era, um, if we just bring China in and we make them give them a seat at the table and we and we trade with them and we do business with them, that they will westernize. Um, but communists don't work like that. Um, they are hardline ideologues um, and they are committed to their communist ideology. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, they've reaped all the benefits of globalization, but have used those benefits to prop up this regime um, and to do so at the expense of their people um, and at the expense of um, freedom loving nations around this world. So, I, look, I think it's changing and I think it's changing fast. I think that um, 
that, you know, th- these issues existed before coronavirus, uh, but they now have come to light in a way that nobody can ignore. And if you look at the polls now, it's around 75% of the country thinks that we need to take drastic action on this issue. So we're, again, we're continuing to ask people to help us in this petition. It's, you know, at stopcommunistchina.com, we've had, we have over 130,000 people who have signed this in four days. Um, and um, and so we're blowing through our numbers and we want to take the, these petitions. We want to go to Congress. I think there's a time that Congress is going to be working on this. We've been talking to people in the administration who are looking at July as a time frame to address this issue. Um, and so we want to be a part of that conversation. I remember a speech Margaret Thatcher gave uh, years after she had left uh, the, the premiership in, in Great Britain. And she said one of the things that she miscalculated on was handing Hong Kong over to the Chinese. She assumed that Hong Kong would be able to spread Western democratic values into China. And all China did was was allow those people to continue making money and forget their Western values. And, and sh- they never expected that the communists in China would actually uh, turn Hong Kong on its head as they have. And now we see mm-hmm. in the last week, uh, they've been cracking down on democratic leaders in Hong Kong while the rest of the world's been distracted. It, it does seem that the West miscalculated how it could deal with that communist nation, particularly for so long after the Soviet Union, wanting a, a communist balance to the Soviets. And now it almost seems like maybe we need to find some way to bring Western allies together to to push back on China. Yeah, a- absolutely. You, you, you mentioned Thatcher. I I remember Winston, a Winston Churchill quote. He said, I tell you, it's no use arguing with a communist. It's no good trying to convert a communist or persuade him. He had it right. Um, and we thought we could convert them. We thought we could persuade them. Um, but again, their, their commitment to that ideology is strong and is not going anywhere. And so I think that the only way you convert and, and persuade them or undermine that communist regime is to have Western democracies begin to uh, unite and and to begin to um, trade with one another um, and not try to um, and not be in a situation where we are so dependent on China for so much of our supply chain and so much of our manufacturing. Well, let, let me ask you that because yeah, I know you, you and I tend to be sympathetic on, on the free trade and the global manufacturing uh, side of things, but it increasingly is clear we get so much of our medical supplies from China and we almost if if we were to disrupt trade relations with China right now more so than uh, the, the tariffs the president imposed, we would be at the short end of the stick given how much of our medical supply comes from there. Yeah, and I and so I think what's called for in this environment um, is a more strategic approach to thinking about how we um, we rely on different countries. We should not have all of our stuff in China. We we should be able to out to source things to other countries so that we're not totally reliant on one country and bring a lot of it back here. So I think you'll see a lot of that going forward and you'll see markets moving from China to other nations that aren't hostile, that aren't communist in their ideology and don't and are not bent on, um, in, in fact, bent on global domination. And so I think um, that's a good development, but we got to get that right in the policy and a lot of policymakers are starting to craft those types of pieces of legislation right now. So beyond the petition, what should people be doing? Oh, well, Eric, I mean, first, I mean, <laughs> just in general, you know, people should be as active as they can in voicing what's going on, uh, voicing how this crisis is impacting what's going on around them. 
Um, the next few months are just so critical. Um, and I think Congress needs to hear about smart ways to begin to reopen the economy. Um, Congress needs to be hearing about um, real, real problems with some of the stimulus bills that have been passed and how money's not going to the people that, they, that need it the most. Stand for America is voicing all of those, um, uh, of those voices, and we are making sure that people hear it. Um, but I think people need to be active. They need to be engaged. They need to be helping their fellow citizens, but also making sure that, uh, that their representatives know how uh, the crisis is impacting them. And give us the website one more time where the people can go sign the petition. It's stopcommunistchina.com. Pretty simple. And you can sign the petition there and uh, be part of, of what we're doing at Stand for America. We, we welcome the support. Well, look, I appreciate you stopping by to talk about it very much so. And, and good to hear from you as always. Yeah, Eric, great to hear from you too. Keep up the great work. Thanks very much. Tim Chapman with Stand for America. It is StopCommunistChina.com is the petition trying to get uh, China uh, some accountability, some build some groundswell of support within American domestic policy to deal with it. Here is Tom Cotton as well on the issue uh, on the Sunday shows this weekend. So, Maria, again, it was obvious by mid-December to Chinese authorities that this virus was highly contagious and very deadly. They also knew that as this virus began to spread outside Wuhan, it would wreak economic havoc throughout China. And in fact, China had the first contraction in the first quarter of this year since the Cultural Revolution ended in the 1970s. I believe the Chinese Communist leaders, when they were aware of those facts by mid-January, made the conscious decision not to explain to the world that it was transmissible between humans, not to shut down travel, not to ask for American or other kind of international scientific help, but to allow this virus to escape their borders. Because if they were going to suffer an economic contraction, they were not going to allow the world to continue to prosper and China be the only country whose economy was declining. They might see an absolute decline in their economy, but they refused to see a relative decline, especially relative to the United States. So we need to deal with the Chinese situation. And, you know, th there have been these Confucius Institutes around the uh, around the country and colleges and universities that were designed to uh, foster collaboration between China and the United States. And we now know Marco Rubio actually led an investigation in the Senate on these. They're essentially Chinese propaganda outfits. And we also now know that the, uh, th that the Chinese have been, for the last number of years, have been working collaboratively with people inside the... Um, United States to try to foster sympathy for China. And um, it's an ongoing problem. And it is a problem that Congress for a long time has been trying to avoid dealing with. And frankly, it's a problem that Congress hasn't wanted to deal with because there are members of Congress who are sympathetic. You know, I've been writing now for probably about four years, four years that there are elite opinion makers in this country at the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, on TV, on CNN, and in Congress who believe, and they don't want to really say it, some of them will. Tom Friedman of the New York Times is one of the ones who's very pro-China. But they believe that the American era is on the decline. 
it is now time for the rise of China. And they don't want to come up with policy prescriptions that could head that off. They don't want to block people. What they want to do is they want to essentially begin to accommodate it. In Hollywood, it is also a prevailing thesis that the rise of China. Look at how many Hollywood studios are dependent on the Chinese box office now for profitability. And they've just gradually come to accept that China is going to be the place to move forward. And China is the place that is going to uh, be the dominant country and we should accept it. But there's a problem. Chinese communist values are not compatible with the Western world. And we should be willing to point that out. And we should be willing to mobilize the Western world against it. And we've got the perfect opportunity right now. Do you know China is threatening to halt imports from Australia, the Chinese, uh, Australian beef and wine, because Australia wants a global accounting for what China knew or did not know about the virus. The British have decided to stop Huawei from building out 5G infrastructure in, in Britain because of COVID-19. It seems like now is the time for Western powers to make a concerted combined effort against China on the World Trade Organization, uh, the UN and elsewhere, and when where we can. Because the Chinese are only going to become more and more dominant, and we need to have a plan to combat them, and we don't right now. We need one. Let's go back to the phones. Donna is calling from Clarksville. Donna, thanks for being patient with me. How are you? That's all right. I'm, I agree with you. I don't think we should be sleeping with China either. Uh, yeah. But I had a I had a question about the masks. Um, everybody wants to open up. Uh, we're relieved. I think a lot of people are tired of sheltering in place. But I know quite a few people who can't get a hold of the the masks that they need. And I was wondering if there's any store or any place out there that is trying to accommodate people as far as that kind of protective gear goes. I mean, I know people who don't have the Internet, and yeah. even maybe and there's some elderly shut-in types who don't even have credit cards. If they had the Internet, they would have a hard time getting what they need. Do you have any – I mean, is there any place uh, that would um, be able it, to provide those that you know of? It's so uh, – there was an article in, oh, I think it was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but please don't hold me to that. Uh, but there was an article about local drugstores, not your chains, not CVS and Walgreens, but local drugstores okay. in areas tend to be far more accommodating and have uh, paint stores as well because of painter's masks. Uh, okay. Those tend to be easier to access than the Walgreens and the CVSs. They have them, but they sell out very fast because people come in, they know them. Uh, but if you have a local pharmacy that's associated with the hospital or uh, just a local mom and pop shop pharmacy, they tend to have better supplies of masks and then local okay. hardware store, not the chain hardware stores other than ACE, uh, but the ACEs right. and the local paint shops tend to have the, the N95 masks more readily in stock than than the big chains. That That's kind of one of the, the interesting things here, Donna, is that uh, from the reporting I read, it's, it's the mom and pop shops that are actually doing better in this because people actually think of going to the chains first and buy them out. So it's right. the mom and pop shops that are uh, sustaining them more. And then th there have been in networks around the state volunteers. My wife has been one who's been uh, making cloth masks that aren't quite as effective, but still pretty good. 
good uh, at this, but uh-huh. it, they're hard to find. I finally got some on Amazon yesterday, and I've been looking for months for them. Well, my computer has been on the fritz. Everything decided to break down once all this started, and I haven't worried that much about it. But like I said, I ran into a little lady, and she was just it was an elderly lady, and she was just in fear. Um, she had to go out to pick up medication, but she, you know, she was like, well, I don't even know where to find them. I don't have the Internet, and there's no one who can help me. And my heart went out to her, and I thought, well, okay, uh, I'll ask and see if anybody knows anything. But, you know, there's a segment of the population who don't have access to all these modern Right. things, you know, and, and like I said, there are people with, who don't even have credit cards who couldn't buy off of the internet, even if they have the internet. And the mask situation to me is, is, is just one of those things where everyone's being encouraged to do it, encouraged to do it. And yet the access to the means to do it isn't available for everyone. Yeah. Um, there's an, there's an assumption now that everybody has stepped into modern times and <laughs> modern times right. haven't reached everywhere. Uh, well, yeah, you're, you're right. Are, particularly the people who have to use the satellite internet and it's so slow. Don, I got to leave you there cause I got a break, but yes, you're, you're right. And I mean, look, I, I tried for months to get masks, even when the CDC was saying, don't everybody don't wear masks only for the healthcare providers. I was thinking, yeah, probably ought to get some and couldn't they're sold out everywhere. And now they're starting to come back in stock at Amazon. But again, people don't have it. Uh, The mom and pop shops tend to be the best, according to the newspaper. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I went into Publix yesterday and was walking down the baking goods aisle. That's where they also have the sauces and stuff. And there was Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. And a guy saw me and said, here's your sponsor. Yes, they are. Uh, thank you to the listener. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get the guy's name. That happens more and more. It is great barbecue sauce, and I, I very much appreciate them sponsoring the program. Um, if you need a good barbecue sauce, old school, great Southern barbecue sauce, Mrs. Griffin's is the way to go. You can find it at your local grocery store. Go to mrsgriffins.com. You can buy two, get one free if you go right now. Um, so PPP has been funded and the small business administration is already saying today that they are being swamped with applications from people. Uh, Congress is already saying they're going to have to fund this thing again. I don't understand for the life of me why they are doing it only incrementally. It makes no sense. You know what Denmark did? Denmark decided that the government was just going to cover the payroll of companies. The result is that in Denmark, they stepped up, paid payroll, and they haven't had this lobbyist free-for-all in their government. You haven't had people nitpicking, and they haven't had to keep coming back for more. And in this country, we're having to do this, this just stepping up. It, it, it makes no sense to me. And then you're having big companies that are being shamed because the small companies can't get in. Uh, people, it, Banks are picking winners and losers. Uh, you know, it's one reason I, I keep recommending people go to uh, First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan because they're not picking winners and losers. They're trying to help everybody. They've been overwhelmed. I, I, I've heard they've gotten tons of people in. In fact, uh, if you need a PPP plan, uh, I highly recommend First Liberty uh, Building and Loan. They're friends of mine, the Frost family. Some of you know them. They're active in politics. They're a good Christian family here in the state. They live in Noonan, and their website is firstlibertyga.com. If you go to their website, firstlibertyga.com, there's a box that says apply now. 
and you can click on that and you can get your application in. Uh, the SBA is starting to accept loans today. So if your small business needs payroll protection, uh, I would recommend a smaller company. I know I talked to Mr. Frost last week. They've hired new staff, got new computers to be able to help. They can't guarantee anything, obviously. No, no bank, uh, no lender can guarantee that you'll get into the program. But they bought new computers, hired additional staff to handle the paperwork, and they're ready. If you go to FirstLibertyGA.com and click the button, uh, you can apply for payroll protection online with that company. Good people, too. Um, but man, Congress needs to get a grip on this instead of doing this incremental funding every two weeks when it runs out of money. They're not really assessing the problem well, but that's Congress.